Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones, and this is hardcore church planning. So hardcore that I'm doing this on my own today. I don't have my wingman, Pete Mitchell, with me. But it's pretty cool because we're doing something out of the ordinary. We got a three-part series we are doing uh, to hear from our brothers from the Anglican side of things because, dang it, they have some unique things to say that other people in the church planning conversation are not saying. And I am absolutely fascinated with what I see coming out of that sector of the body of Christ. And what's really cool about these guys is they're humble. Um, they've been around a long time. They got a lot of famous people, people like Betty Ford, C.S. Lewis, a lot of people that have done a heck of a lot of good. And uh, not to mention a couple kings and queens that have uh, popped up throughout uh, history. But uh, it is very cool to have back on here a guy I consider someone becoming a fast friend, uh, Reverend Sean McCain. Uh, welcome back to the show. Man, it's always good to be back. I feel like I've done this a lot. Like I'm getting used to this now. <laughs> See, we I don't get like used to that. This. We don't like that because we like to keep our guests off guard, particularly with the <laughs> last question, right? When we when we have them fight a famous figure in church history or or a contemporary, uh, we just like to make it weird, you know. But well, uh, it's it's tough though to keep things weird with me because I live in Austin, and when everything's weird, nothing's weird. So maybe that's why I feel at home here. Absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, as they say, since this is the week that Rogue One comes out, I have to say that rebels my kind of scum. And that's the feeling I get about you. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and kick it into high gear. Uh, so far, you've been laying down things about, um, uh, you know, missional sacraments, um, things like that, and and or sacramental missiology, just to, to get it completely wrong. And You've been laying down some stuff. I know our listeners are picking up and going, that is cool. Now, what do I do with it? And when we were talking before this, you had kind of said, hey, I'd like to go into the direction of, hey, all this stuff I've been talking about, so what? What does that mean for church planning? And uh, through your experience, in particular, uh, for our listeners, Anglicanism's on fire in the world of church planning. You guys have really picked up some speed. And we're starting to hear about what you guys are doing. So um, go ahead and lay down some of what does this mean in the context of church planning? Definitely. I So I, I am a practitioner, and I hope that um, this conversation is helpful to other folks just like myself who are on the ground, in a place, trying to do ministry, trying to ask huge questions like, God, what are you doing here? How do we realize and plant the church that you are giving birth to. And like midwives, we, you know, I, church planting language, um, it, it says part of it, but there's another part of it that's like, I am not planting this thing. I'm midwifing this thing that God seems to be giving birth to. So there's just kind of this cooperative 
thing that's going on in the world. And even in that own pers- that, that perspective of kind of cooperating with God, what God's already doing in a place, um, I think is some really fertile ground to talk about. So what does uh, sacramentology, what do the sacraments have to do with church planting? Um, well, one of the things that I've noticed as I was kind of a young Anglican trying to figure out how to plant a church in Santa Cruz, um, and now even in Austin planting a church, um, one of the things I noticed in all of the church planting literature that I could put my hands on was everyone was talking about planting, but no one was talking about the church. Like, you know, ink was spilled hundreds of pages on the verb there and not the noun. Like, I was like, okay, so what is the church? Um, like if we are going to go into the kitchen and make some food um, and we realize we're making two different dishes, that would be a problem. Um, and so if we don't have an understanding of what the church is, we can end up with really different approaches to it. And I know there's a, a whole wealth of things, uh, ideas about what the church is, but I will say um, this is the really the issue that kind of got a hold of me as a church planter was trying to wrap my head around what is the church? Is it just this um, society of, you know, religious volunteers who get together on a certain day of the week and rah, 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 and yep, we agree on big things. And now go back into the world and do your best. Or, um, which it sounds totally um, uninteresting, <laughs> actually, now that you describe it like that. Um, but or is this, is this some True. sort of act of God on behalf of and in spite of mm. a people like that in a place? Like, what's God doing? What's his initiative here? Does that make sense? Oh, dude, I, that, I, that is the crucial question right there. So you've hit the nail on the head. Well, and when you begin asking that kind of question and um, you look back before, you know, the 1950s or just even in history at all, you see a wealth of answers about what is the church. And so much of it has to do with the sacraments. And so necessarily there's just this connection between church planting and um, and this rich history of sacramentology. Real practically, the Eucharist is looked to as the thing that constitutes the church. What makes the church other than the body and blood of Jesus forming his body in a certain place? Um, this this is probably like really foreign or kind of maybe even sitting like this is really out there for some folks, maybe who come from a non-sacramental tradition. But, um, but I that's dig okay. that. I dig that because if we can't open up to these ideas and, and maybe look back and think, well, hold on, people have been saying this for almost 2000 years and maybe the last, you know, a uh, few hundred years in, in, in America, this has gotten forgotten. So I, I have a book. I have to say cha-ching. That's the rule. When <laughs> you plug your own book on a show, you have to say cha-ching. We make all of our authors do it. We can plug their book, but uh, I wrote a book called Church Zero. Cha-ching. And it, it is really pretty much about things that were forgotten by the church that the mm-hmm. first century knew. And so I am all for unearthing the, you know, out of the well of souls, the lost Ark of the covenant and maybe restoring something to the church that it's lost along the way. Because after all, uh, if we're reforming, um, we're reforming not towards the reformation. We're reforming towards uh, early Christianity, you know um, what Jesus intended it to be. And, uh, so I am, I'm all ears. I hope, I hope our listeners are, I'm, I'm working particularly with the Southern Baptist convention right now. And, you know, all you're saying, I mean, if you want to hear what is important to them in church planning, they're going to say baptism. So it's not too far off the mark. Um, Mm. 
you know, everybody's got a piece of it. But I love hearing somebody who says, no, this is important, more important than probably any of us realize. Yeah, well, I'm yeah, I'm with you. And even if um, there are church traditions that um, don't have like a sacramental expression, you'll notice still in like preaching language or in discipleship language, um, a lot of like a very deep and genuine desire to see the teachings of Jesus enfleshed and embodied and practice, like not just thought about, but actually put to use, put to work. Um, and I, you know, Peyton, I think my, one of my suspicions is that desire to see the life of Christ embodied in the lives of his people is actually really sacramental. That's what, that's kind of the affection underneath all of that. And, and rightly so that's like a, a natively Christian desire to see Christ embodied in the world. That's mm. kind of the scandal of the incarnation itself. And as planters, that's the audacious mission that we're undertaking, that we're participating in is that very thing of seeing the life of Christ embodied in a place in the lives of his people and the congregation. So I, I hope this isn't too far afield for folks, but, but I think that desire can be shared and, and even really concretely the church tradition, um, provides for us language and particularities about that desire for Christ's life and his teaching to be embodied um, more than just sentimentally, but like really Christ is present with us just as he promised even in the great commission. Um, and so kind of the logic goes, I, I love Simon Chan. He wrote this, he's this Chinese assembly of God, PhD trained at Cambridge, um, uh, pastor, theologian. He wrote this really brilliant um, book on, on liturgical theology that ended up becoming kind of this accidental. I mean, it wasn't accidental, I'm sure, but it, it's like a really beautiful Anglican theology. And in it, he says this, he says um, that as Christ makes himself available to the church in the sacraments um, and listen to this, this is the missional impulse of this. The church in turn makes itself available to the world as the embodied Christ. And so with this, he kind of picks up this logic, like as Jesus makes himself present to the church in the sacraments, in these concrete ways, the church is then constituted. It's brought about as the body of Christ in that neighborhood. And so for him and for, for a lot of Anglicans like myself, um, when, if you were to ask us, what is the most missional thing you can do in your neighborhood? We would say, well, celebrate Holy Eucharist, of course, uh, to, to realize the real presence of Jesus in a community and a people, and then to release them into the world as this embodied Christ, as this living and breathing organism that we call the church. Um, this is for, for folks coming from sacramental perspectives. Um, this is like the greatest mission there is, is the church to be itself for the church to um, realize itself as the embodied Christ and then to cooperate and participate with God in the neighborhood, doing the things that he's up to. Which kind of, you know, I think if if we can look at this and see, it's kind of turning upside down some of the the church planting paradigm or strategy. Like, well, you you got to gather people, you got to you got to get a bunch of hype, you got to get your name out there, and once you have kind of a critical mass and you got a budget and you got a vision, um, maybe you got a website, then you get people together and uh, you build relationships and you worship together, and somewhere along the way you have the church. And um, I wouldn't say any of that's not true, but I would say um, that more more concretely and, and honestly, um, even maybe a little bit more truly, God gives himself to us, not in our efforts of, of stirring up attention, but he gives himself to us freely through his son 
and his son has made himself available to the church in the sacraments. And so you can kind of see the logic there of, um, of church planting sacramentally, you know, of sure, let's have, I mean, we, we need people and we need, uh, you know, our neighborhood to know that we're present. We need all those things. Um, but you can have chairs and a sound system. You can have mailers and a website and still not have the church shoot. You can even have preaching and still not have the church. Um, what is the thing that brings about the church? Is it any of the things that we um, are working so hard to provide as a spiritual service for people? Or is it, is it the thing that God himself has offered to us through his son by the power of the spirit in the sacraments? I think there's something there. So for me, I mean, real practically as a church planter, um, and I got to confess, some of this is a little bit like, I want to see if this works. <laughs> as, a, as a church planner, you know, we're given these beautiful ideas and we want to put them to work. And so um, in, in Austin, we planted our church, Resurrection South Austin. We, we planted it really with a chalice. Um, we, we didn't buy a sound system first. We didn't, we didn't buy a whole lot of anything. Our first major purchase was a chalice. Um, and not just because the chalice in itself has some sort of like power to plant a church, but really as a, as a way of, um, embodying that commitment, that approach, that posture towards planting that is saying, it's a statement really to us saying, Jesus is the one who plants this church. So let's, let's come around him. Let's celebrate him. Mm. And by the mercy of God, by the power of his spirit, we're going to huddle up and celebrate communion and see what happens. Hmm. Um, I don't think you'll find, <laughs> I don't know if you'll find that in a church planting book, but that's what you we did. Mine. <laughs> so you're speaking my love language right now, because I, I basically say all of that, 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 you know, we do it so opposite to how Paul did it. Mm. You know, Paul didn't do it that way. You know, Paul went out and anyways, yeah, no, but trust me, we're on the same page, brother. Anyone who okay. listens to this podcast knows exactly like you're speaking their language. Or you're speaking exactly what they normally hear, which is, you know, we, we always constantly say, look, you know, um, RMO today is to get a sexy website, um, get a, get a building, um, put our web page up, put our mailers out and it's backwards. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, we basically are trying to get a bunch of people in a room, um, amass a crowd. And in my next book, cha -ching, there it goes again, <laughs> but that's for a different one. Um, I talk about, Hey, you know, last time I checked, we weren't about drawn crowds, you know, PT mm. Barnum and, and Bailey can do that better than the church, you know, but that, that's, mm. that's all you need to run a circus. But the reality is we are trying to do something different. And, uh, so you're, you're on the same page, man. You're preaching to the choir here. And, and Peyton, though, as a planter, you know, the kind of, um, relief that is for someone who doesn't like, I, you know, I can preach, I guess, but. I'm not the greatest guy out there and um, I'm a nice guy, but I'm not that nice, you know? And for me, it's such a relief to, to know that the church coming into existence and surviving is not on my shoulders. Yeah. That is like not all dependent on me, but in, act in actuality, I can hide myself in the grace of God, in the tradition of the church and, and be obedient and I mean, and work your tail off for sure. Um, but it's really God's prerogative, isn't it, to bring about his church? And so for me, we get to really lean into that um, crazy, risky uh, church planting through the sacraments posture of just saying, God, this is this is on you. What do you want to do? Um, and what he calls into existence is his church. And I think that's just kind of this um, church planting is, is miraculous in that sense. 
Um, and I, but I think one of the temptations for planners, I don't know if, if you can relate to this, Peyton, but is, you know, this idea that if we can stir up some energy, then we can mobilize the church, we can get out in the world and we could change things. And um, not that that's bad, but I think it's actually, it, it assumes um, an understanding of the church that is an instrument, you know, like this blunt instrument that's going to go accomplish something. And in fact, some, some people even feel the pressure of like, oh man, if we're not like doing mission trips and serving the poor and doing these things out in the world, then like, we're not, um, we're not really like a church. Um, and I'd say there's, that's cert- there's certainly something there as part of our identity that that's what we do when the church is itself, it does those things, but that's not what makes the church. Um, Simon Chan, again, I quote him, he says, just to summarize what I'm, my point is, um, that a broken, uh, the church does not exist to fix a broken creation. Rather, a broken creation exists to realize the church. Um, and it, I think it just kind of turns upside down all of our missiology. And it, it's saying, basically, look, the church isn't some blunt instrument out there to try and evoke change. No, like God's got that. We've got a Messiah. The church is um, actually the destination. It's where, it's where a fallen creation being reconciled to God the Father through Christ that moment, that reality, that place, that's the church. So plant, like, how do you plant that? How do you plant the reconciliation of the cosmos? Um, I don't, I don't think you do. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's right. It's, it's just something that God's doing. And if he's truly doing it, if that's really what this is about, then all the more reason for us to lean on his, his self-giving sacrifice at the cross and in, in the Eucharist that he's made available to his church. And in that reality, we are, we become something once we were not a people. Now we are God's people. We become something we weren't as the body of Christ in a neighborhood. And then the, the dangerous thing, we're unleashed into a neighborhood. Um, and so I think it's to honestly, to the best kind of missional church, I think is a church that is first grounded sacramentally, realizing the way that God has given himself to the world in his son made available to the church that in turn goes into the world, making itself available uh, for the sake of others. Does that make sense? Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. So, so let me ask you, um, how does that, so you bought your chalice and you planted the church and you had that. What has been some of the stories or experiences coming out of you taking this posture in planting churches where you say, look, we're kind of like what you said, just to summarize from our earlier interviews, we're like, look, we're not trying to be cool. We're not even trying, right? Someone said, you guys aren't even trying, right? You're, you're not there to be cool. You're not there to um, run a circus. You're not there to draw a crowd. You're there to really um, embody the presence of Christ in a community. Tell us how, because your passion is that sacramental missiology when the rubber meets the road and you know you've seen what happens to people give me give me some examples of people from outside the church that have come in and what they've encountered and what kind of a difference you believe that approach has made to them mm, yeah um it's all really surprising honestly uh what eucharist the holy eucharist does in a service is it it forces um an exclusion in a community because uh, it is, it's not an open table. We invite all those who are baptized and following Jesus to come and receive this meal. So like we don't come to the table 
you know, on our own, we actually come to the table through the waters of baptism. And so when you do that, that there's an invitation there, but there's also this kind of necessary exclusion that you're, you're throwing down a fence basically. Um, and what we've seen in that is people saying, and, and I'm thinking, okay, I want to be hospitable. I want people to feel welcome and comfortable. Um, you kind of come as you are. Um, and so I want to remove all the barriers for people so that there's no hindrance. And, and what I've, what I found is the ways that the church and the sacraments and the traditions have mentored me in, in laying down some of those boundary lines, um, have actually shown me the integrity of the gospel and the integrity of what it means to be the church, even when it's, um, sometimes seemingly inhospitable, but in reality, those people who are being welcomed for the first time, um, they, they, I've got so many conversations with people that say, I'm so I'm so glad that you're finally taking this like me seriously, that, um, that you guys have something different that you stand for, that you that you have a community that you have like a real distinct community that you're part of and you, you believe in something. Um, and you can't just kind of wander in on your own, but there's actually like a way to be taken seriously and brought into the community to be catechized or like discipled, um, to, to take baptism seriously, to, to have a washing of sin and coming into the household of God. Like we make a really big deal of that for our kids and for new people. Um, so for some people, the kind of the fencing of the altar has become this like, um, really hospitable, surprisingly hospitable way of saying, um, you're not part of our community yet. You belong. You're welcome here. We want you to be here. Um, and, and if, if this is what you want, let us continue to welcome you through the waters of baptism, mm. through discipleship. So it doesn't like short circuit that process. And what you get, I think, is people who are more deeply formed than if people who just said, oh, cool, you're here. Great. Um, you, you must be all good to go. <laughs> well, and that <laughs> exists to, in the early church, didn't it? I mean, one, one of right. the things that for me coming out of, um, and I believe you did too, um, from our earlier conversation, coming out of an evangelical background, forgive my train here, it's going to come by while I'm talking. So inconvenient living next to a train. But uh, one of the things that you had in the early church, you know, they didn't have what we have today. And this has never been my best friend. Oh, that, that's crazy. It's never been my best friend, which is, um, hey, raise your hand up and repeat a prayer after me. Um, I'm sure. not completely against any way that people come to faith. But what I can say is I've looked high and low in the scripture and never found that approach. And what I do find is when they say, what must we do to be saved? He says, believe and be baptized. And it's hmm. not baptismal regeneration. He's just literally saying, that's the rite of passage by which we all know that you've come to Jesus. You know, hmm. for, for them, totally. it was the first century equivalent of what we have today. And I, I believe we substituted it for the sinner's prayer. Baptism is much more of an experience. And that's why I think it's more valuable. And what you're saying about, hey, you gotta, you gotta like do something to mark this rite of passage here. You know, this is a response, as Peter points out later. Uh, the very guy who gave that response on the temple steps, um, gives that response in for, he says it's a response. It is a response mm. of a conscience that you you go into the waters of baptism. And so for us, what we found, particularly in urban Long Beach, we were in the Rainbow District. And I wrote a, an article called The Gospel in an LGBT World for Leadership Journal. 
And it, it was out of our experience there because people would say, how can you welcome people from alternative lifestyles into your, into your church? And I said, well, basically it's like we put a metal detector up at the front, you know, with, with people from alternative lifestyles. But here's the deal. What we found is we tell them the gospels for you. Jesus died for you uh, as much as he did. I mean, you can read the whole article, but, but the reality is for us is we are so afraid of exclusivism when the gospel itself is exclusive. We need to remember that the grace of God is inclusive, but mm-hmm. our faith is exclusive at the same time. You, there are those in and those out of the family of God. And so baptism marks that passage that you go from. Of course, it's faith. Of course, it's belief. But this is the response. This is your act of faith. It's that faith that produces actions in this baptism that lets everybody know I am now a part of this community. And what we found in the Rainbow District, where I'm going with this, is that um, people who were genuinely willing to repent of a lifestyle um, would get baptized. People who were not, without us saying anything, and this to me is the power of baptism, that that it's more than just a, you know, an acknowledgement of, you know, or a symbol. Like something, the soul knows, like this is heavy duty. And Paul even refers back to it and says, hey, remember what you were saying there. You were saying the old you was dead. I mean, it's powerful stuff, but we would find that people would say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get baptized. And right up even to the day, we would just suddenly not see them on that day as if something gripped them and said, I can't go through with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and to me, and that you, was so powerful. I, I, I totally agree. And even before people get to that place, um, it seems like th- there's this, there's something in, in just packaged in the liturgy. Michael Ramsey said the hundredth, hundredth Archbishop of Canterbury, my hero, um, Archbishop Michael Ramsey, he said the the liturgy isn't based. I'm paraphrasing. The liturgy isn't great because it's old or it's ancient. It's it's good. Um, it's great because of its ability to proclaim the gospel. Right. And Sunday in and Sunday out, you're giving some. You're giving people something to respond to. Um, there's something that you can't walk into our church and walk out and go, I wonder what they believe. <laughs> you know, like we literally stand and say the creed or, and from, from start to finish the architecture, the space, the use of time, the language we use, the way we use our bodies, the whole thing is enacting this gospel drama that everyone is caught up into. And so there's this really concrete, lucid, um, articulate gospel narrative that's unfolding. Um, and if, and I've been into many churches where, you know, you walk in and people are droning on and it's the liturgy and it's, you know, when is this going to end? Um, certainly that can happen. I mean, that can happen in any kind of church, to be honest, but if we're awake to it, if we notice, um, what's actually happening and pay attention, um, the liturgy actually is, is jam packed of the gospel narrative and has this power to like form us into kinds of gospel people so much so that if people are seeking or they're no matter where they are in their life, they will find themselves at a point of realization or of confrontation of, you know, kind of, do I believe this? I've been doing this. I've been caught up in this. I mean, and I'm suspicious maybe even that God's doing something in this to me. What do I think about that? Um, what's my, what's my response to that? And so, I mean, we joke, like we have a gospel, we have a, an altar call every week, you know, we invite everyone to the altar every week. Um, and there's this, and, and there's this kind of 
inherent gospel message laying in the liturgy that if you're paying attention to it, will get, will get you. One of the most interesting surprises for me is, um, as we've planted one of the, the most well-attended thing, um, uh, probably in all of our church events is when I do a liturgy tour where after the service, we'll stick around, grab coffee and I'll, I'll lay out all the robes and the bells and the incense, just all the holy hardware and just the whole, all the gear. And we'll have like this big show and tell, and I'll, walk through the liturgy with these folks and at every step of the way talk about how all of this is actually pointing us to Jesus, how all of this is telling the gospel story. Um, so it's this way of being discipled. It's, we do it. We, we, we participate in liturgy, um, because it's true. It's the gospel. And so for us, like things like Eucharist and baptism, um, they actually, I think really recalibrate our vision. They give us eyes to see, what's true, what's real. And that is, that is the gospel. I think a lot of people think of like sacraments as escapism or like liturgy is this pietistic, you know, weird thing that you can go do that if you're into that. But in actuality, I think that in the wisdom of the church that's been handed to us, it is actually more true and real than anything else we encounter throughout the week. It's like the most true thing um, to behold the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Amen. And you, you, you bring up a really good point. And, you know, we talked on our earlier um, podcast about, you know, Wesley and Whitfield. If you lived in Wales during the 1700s, you would know of a third major character, a big player in early Methodism, um, guy Welshman by the name of Hal Harris. Um, he started something called The Connection in Trevecca. And it was a, it was a, it was a church planning network, really. And that was such a powerful move of God's spirit in the UK. You study the, the stories there, but he was converted prior to the great awakening, um, at the, at the dawn of it by taking communion. He was in, um, like I said, he was in a little town called Rebecca and, mm-hmm. uh, he was in the little parish church there. He was a gambler. He was a drunkard. He was a ladies man. Uh, he was kind of foppish, dressed up in fancy clothes, was quite a stylish little dude. And uh, he ended up um, coming into church and he was hungover. And uh, the minister said, we're going to come to the Lord's table now. And he made, he made this statement that if you're not fit this morning to come to the Lord's table, you're not fit to live and you're definitely not fit to die. Whoa. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit like a bullet to the brain shot that man between the eyes and he became converted on the spot, mm. you know, by, and, and, and the thing that, that was interesting, I read this book like probably 20 years ago um, on Hal Harris, but I remember then the author said something to the effect of, you know, it, it, and he must've been an Anglican because he brought out the point that having the body uh, and blood of Christ, and remember all these guys, they, they all died Anglicans. Um, but he said, having the body and blood of Christ on display weekly in front of lost people is powerful. And, and it's amazing to me how we overlook that very simple truth. How powerful to have the, if it's not in the sermon, if it's not anywhere else, it is there for all to see every single week in wow. that form. And missionally, that's powerful. I think we lose sight of that. So, um, I wanted to raise that and I, and I hate to, to clinch it there because I'm sure I got you all excited again because this is your passion. But one of the things in, in just to sum up here that I have found 
incredibly refreshing is what I, and, and what I'm hearing coming from you and what I think has often been lost. You started there and you wove it all the way through is the presence of God, that that is the number one. It's Jesus saying, you know, my father is working and has been working till now. That is my favorite verse in connection to church planting mm-hmm. because it's what I experienced. That God does all the heavy lifting. My testimony was I quit ministry and told God on an outreach after I'd quit, well, you do the heavy lifting. You're who you say you are, so I don't have to do much then. And boom, everything broke open. And I just think that what has been lost to the church uh, to, a, to a greater or lesser degree in the last 60, 70 years, maybe more, has been this sense of the presence of God. What I've heard coming from you today is the shocking revelation that church ought to be spiritual. Mm. Well, that's good. <laughs> Amen to that, man. Seriously. So, brother, thanks for all you've brought. You know, as you were mentioning about these things, the show and tell and bringing, my mind went to the Old Testament, that God communicated like that with his people for hundreds of years. Um, you know, uh, more than that, actually, you know, not, mm-hmm. you know, a couple thousand years. And so, brother, I want to thank you for coming back on the show today. Again, if, if you guys want to hear, I didn't introduce him properly, but again, it was Sean McCain. He's part of the podcast with Dan Elger, uh, which is always forward. I would highly suggest you check out the website, always-forward.com. And, uh, again, um, thanks for bringing a fresh perspective on these things to our church planning audience. You're welcome, Peyton. Thanks for having me, bud. Well, before we let you go, we need mm-hmm. to make you fight again. And I, I know, oh. I know it's, you know, and you can, you know, you can fight with the dog collar on it makes it kind of more tough. Right. I mean, that that's kind of more edgy. Um, all right, all but right. uh, if you were to get into a physical fist fight with C.S. Lewis, who would win? Oh. Oh, man. Well, he, again, this is the kind of guy that's going to talk so much poetic smack that you have nothing left before the first fist is thrown, you know? Um, Shock and awe, my friend. Shock and awe. Yeah. That's his tactic. If I was going to get in a fist fight, I'd have to attack him before, like, I'd have to get the element of surprise. I'd have to attack him before he could open his mouth. Um, but, I, but, you know, I think he's kind of one of those probably – you know, they, they were, in, is it the Eagle and Child that him and Tolkien would hang out in? Yeah. Um, they probably had enough pints and smokes that they'd be pretty lazy and out of shape. I bet you I could take them. <laughs> I'm just going to go with that. Yeah, I think you might you might have something there. Yeah, the bird and the baby, the Eagle and Child, man, they, they would go there. And, you know, it, it's amazing to me that with all their debates, they never did have a drunken punch up. You would think. No, I'm sure they did. They had to have. Who doesn't? I tell you right. what, guys, if you want to read a fantastic book, I'm actually about halfway through. It's called The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings by, uh, uh, oh, I don't even know if I can say their last name, Z- Zaliski. Definitely check that out. But again, that's me geeking out on books. I'm not allowed to do that when, when Pete's on the <laughs> podcast because uh, he's like, yawn. So anyways, again, this has been Hardcore Church Planning. My guest, Sean McCain from Always Forward. And Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planting. 
Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.